the Old Testament book of Jeremiah in chapter 2. Your Nova app has a Bible on it also in the sermon notes, and so you'll want to open up that if, if you have that downloaded on your phone or your tablet. Jeremiah chapter 2, we'll go from verse 2 to 13, and then we'll capture verse 19 also. We have been in a series this summer entitled Seven, and we've been talking all about the seven deadly sins and the seven life-giving virtues. And before we read the text this morning, I want to do just a quick review on the seven deadlies over the last seven weeks. And so we've taken a look at each of the seven deadly sins, and we started with the, the first deadly sin of pride, and we looked at the arrogant life of King Nebuchadnezzar. And then Dave, Pastor Dave, uh, took up the subject of the deadly sin of sloth, and he brought us through the well-known story of David the commander and how his slothful attitude led him to adultery with Bathsheba. And then we jumped in on VBS Celebration Sunday and we look at, looked at the sin of envy and the nation of Israel who were people who were strangely longing for days that they, when they were slaves in Egypt and they were envious of those days. Then we looked at the Deadly sin of gluttony with the example of the story of the rich man and Lazarus. And then the greed the, in the story of the rich young ruler and Jesus' encounter with the rich young ruler. And then we looked at the deadly sin of wrath. And Thomas worked us through with Saul's anger and David's righteous anger. And we ended last week with the deadly sin of lust. And we looked at Jesus' words from the Sermon on the Mount about sexual purity. Let me ask you, out of all of these seven sins, which is most deadly to you? We should just have a discussion about that right now amongst yourselves, shouldn't we? Just No, we, we won't do that. We're going to conclude our series today, though, and we'll look at the most deadly part of the seven deadly sins. And strangely enough, it's, it's not a particular sin. Now, in our text today, Jeremiah is one of the last prophets that God sends to his people, Judah, before their nation collapses. And in a short time, Judah will be invaded and carried away into exile. And the book of Jeremiah is just really a series of sermons from God to his people. And this text today is the very first sermon to the people. And Jeremiah is trying to tell, tell those people in Judah why their lives are falling apart. From our text today in Jeremiah chapter 2. Verses 2 through 13 and in verse 19. I remember the devotion of your youth and how as a bride you loved me and followed me through the wilderness, through a land not sown. Israel was holy to the Lord, the first fruits of his harvest. All who devoured her were held guilty and disaster overtook them, declares the Lord. Hear the word of the Lord, you descendants of Jacob, all you clans of Israel. This is what the Lord says. What fault did, you, did your ancestors find in me that they strayed so far from me? They followed worthless idols and became worthless themselves. They did not ask, where is the Lord who brought us up out of Egypt and led us through the barren wilderness, through a land of deserts and ravines, a land of drought and utter darkness, a land where no one travels and no one lives? 
I brought you into a fertile land to eat of its fruit and rich produce. You came and defiled my land and made my inheritance detestable. The priest did not ask, where is the Lord? Those who deal with the law did not know me. The leaders rebelled against me. The prophets prophesied by Baal following worthless idols. Therefore, I bring charges against you again, declares the Lord. And I will bring charges against your children's children. Cross over to the coasts of Cyprus and look, send a Kedar and observe closely. See if there has ever been anything like this. Has a nation ever changed its gods? Yet they are not gods at all. But my people have exchanged their glorious God for worthless idols. Be appalled at this, you heavens, and shudder with great horror, declares the Lord. My people have committed two sins. They have forsaken me, the spring of living water, and have dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. Your wickedness will punish you. Your backsliding will rebuke you. Consider then and realize how evil and bitter it is for you when you forsake the Lord your God and have no awe of me, declares the Lord, the Lord Almighty. This is God's word for us today. Now this text here is a sermon on the nature and the characteristics of sin. And this is a, a really a long and large sermon. It's 37 verses in Jeremiah to the people of Judah. But the summary verse here is in verse 19. And the people of Israel were saying before this sermon, they were looking at their nation and wondering. And they were saying, what's wrong with us anyways? They looked at their, their nation and they asked, what is the problem with us? Why is there so much conflict and anger and discord? And I think this sounds familiar if we think about our country today. Today I think many are thinking the same. What is wrong with us? And for them, and for us, God comes through and says, let me tell you what's wrong with you. And God gives them, through the prophet Jeremiah, a sermon on sin, a sermon on the very nature of sin. And so we'll take a look at our text today, and really we'll focus in on verse 19, and we'll look at two movements on what the nature of sin is all about, and then we'll look at some application, and then we'll share in the Lord's Supper together today. What is the nature of sin? The first is this, sin is denial. Sin is denial. In Jeremiah chapter 2, in the middle of verse 19, it says, Consider then and realize how evil and bitter it is for you. Now, when I, when I read this, I, I think, these words are strong. These are the words of intervention here. Some, some of you know that when I graduated from college, my undergraduate degree, I worked as a recreation therapist at a hospital here in the South Bay. And basically, when people say, what's a recreation therapist anyways? I basically did, it was a psychiatric hospital, so I basically did group therapy in a recreation and leisure setting. So think of it as a group of patients, and, and we're playing volleyball together, and everything matters as far as working with them in therapy. It's serving, it's following the rules, it's competition, it's it's dealing with your feelings about when your team is losing or messes up on a point. It's working as a team. It's all of that, and that's the type of therapy that I did at the psychiatric hospital. We did 
uh, recreation therapy on the running track, and we played, we'd go to the golf course, we'd go surfing and swimming with them, and we would lift weights with them and design programs and talk with them in a recreational therapy uh, setting. But many of these patients came to the hospital as a result of an intervention. They were uh, uh, depressed, they were abusing substances, alcohol and drugs, they were in conflict and they would not understand what conflict or even want to deal with the conflict they were having with loved ones. And so an intervention took place and then they checked into the hospital. And many patients found their way through this intervention and the language of intervention is very interesting. The language of intervention is, is loving yet it's confrontive. The language of intervention is compassionate yet direct. And you, when, you, when you go to an intervention, when you're part of an intervention, you hear words like Someone will say, you know, after a couple of beers that you have, you are a different person. And so it's very direct. It's, it's very compassionate and loving, and yet it's, it's confrontive. They'll say things like, can't you see that you're ruining your life? Someone will say, if you keep this up, you will eventually end up dead. Others will say, you have to learn a better way to cope with your stress and with your anger. And these are the words of intervention. And this is what we read here in Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 19. Now, these interventions here that, that, I've, that I've observed usually end up with the last words after all of this confrontive and loving and compassionate language. They usually end up with someone says, please, please hear us. Please do something about this. We have reserved a room at the hospital for you. Will you go with us? There is a place for you now. If you're willing to deal with your issue, there is a place we want you to go to get help. And I think this is some of the language that God is using. This is the language of intervention when your loved one is in trouble. And this is the language that God uses with us. He uses this word consider. He's saying, you're not thinking. Consider this. He's saying, realize. He's saying, you don't get it. You don't see what your problem is. Realize this. Consider this. The root of our problem is this is this force field of denial that sin has. It's the nature of sin. I, I think, just to be real clear, one of the first statements I want to make about this is, is this. It's, it's not fatal to be a sinner. I think people really focus in on, on sin and things, but it's not fatal to be a sinner. Sin is not fatal. Second statement, just to be real clear, is this. It's the denial that you are a sinner that's fatal. It's the denial of sin that is fatal. Along the same way, it's, it's not fatal to be an alcoholic. It's not fatal to be an alcoholic. Many alcoholics live productive and successful lives, but it's fatal to be an alcoholic and deny that you are. And there is something about the evil of alcoholism that puts a force field of denial around you. And it's the root problem of the evil of humanity. 
that we will not admit that we are sinners. There is nothing fatal about being a sinner. It's fatal to deny that you are a sinner. And by its nature, sin entails denial of itself. So that's the, the first part of the nature of sin is that, is that sin is denial. The second is this, is that uh, sin is the consequences when you have no awe of God. It's the consequences when you have no awe of God. Let me explain this. Take a look at Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 19. It says, Your wickedness will punish you. Your backsliding will rebuke you. Consider then and realize how evil and bitter it is for you when you forsake the Lord your God and have no awe of me, declares the Lord, the Lord Almighty. See, this is the essence of sin, is this. It's no awe of God. And, and many people will ask me, I mean, I'll just be out in the community and they'll know I'm a pastor and, and they'll say, hey, what is sin anyways? Can you define what sin is? And really what they want to know is because they think sin is fatal, right? That they're trying to avoid all these things. And so they kind of want to zero in on what they think is fatal. And so they'll say, what is sin? And, and then they'll answer the question. They'll, they'll, they'll say, isn't, it, isn't sin when you break the Ten Commandments, when you break God's laws? And I'll say, well, well yes, that's, that's sinning. If you, if you want to really know, that, that would be sinning. But I'll say this. Sin is an attitude of the heart. That's sinning when you break God's laws, but sin is an attitude of the heart. The reason you sin is because you have no awe of God. It's, um, I've, I've read this text today in the New International Version. And as, as, I, as I read this phrase, no awe of God, it's, um, I don't want to say it's unfortunate. It, it's, it's, it's a good translation. But most other Bible translations with this phrase, no awe of me, most other translations will use the phrase, no fear of me. One of the central themes of the Bible is the fear of the Lord. You read that throughout the Bible, Old Testament, New Testament. And the essence of sin is that you do not have fear of the Lord. Now, in the Bible, fear is used two different ways. In, in, the, in, in modern people, we use fear in really one of those two ways, typically. So the Bible has fear in two different ways, but as modern people we kind of think of fear as just one way. And an example of that would be in the modern people's version of fear would be in 1 John chapter 4. There's no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment or torment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. And so this is our understanding of fear. When we use the word fear today, we think of fear of as an anticipation of pain and punishment and torment. That's what we think of when we think of fear. Now, how this kind of fear works itself out is you suddenly, when you have this type of fear, you suddenly get fixed on what's going to happen to you, and that's what stirs up this fear. Are you, are you with me, kind of? You have some thoughts in your head? When, you, when you're in the grip of fear, when you're paralyzed by this kind of fear, you're focused on what's coming and everything in your life is done in reference to it. Let's take just the example, just to explain this a little bit more. The example of 
insects or bugs, okay? Now, I don't, I don't have a general fear of bugs like maybe some of you do. Um, I don't like little bugs, like really little bugs, like, you know, you can, what are little bugs? Like fleas. I don't like, I really don't like fleas and ants, right? Um, and I don't like big bugs. Uh, you know, that's why I don't like little and I don't like big. But everything in the middle, I'm really okay with, you know. So tarantulas and big uh, flying cockroaches, the ones in Hawaii, they're, they, they're terrible, you know. So you have big bugs and you have little bugs. I don't like that. So anyways, that's enough about me. Others have an irrational anxiety about bugs. I, I heard a story of a, of a young man and his girlfriend, they were out on a date, and uh, the date was over, and so he takes her to her apartment and says goodnight to her, drives home, goes to his apartment, and gets a phone call. And it's her, and she's screaming bloody murder, you know? And he's like, well, what's wrong? And she's, get over here right now, please. So he jumps back in his car, drives back to her apartment. He comes in the door, and she's screaming, and she says, it's there. And it's a spider in the corner of the room. She says, you've got to get rid of this. I can't go to sleep with this spider in the corner of the room. But that's what fear does. You see, people who have this irrational fear of bugs, they get focused and fixed on the fact that there's a spider in the corner of their room. They can't watch TV. They can't read a book. They can't go to sleep. They can't... uh, they, they can't do anything unless that spider is eradicated from the room because of this fear of bugs. Fear absorbs you and overwhelms you so much that you cannot do anything without reference to it. And this type of fear that we're talking about, the modern-day idea of fear, dominates and overwhelms you. It, you can't forget it, and you're obsessed by it. Then the Bible talks about a different kind of fear. Proverbs chapter 28, verse 14. It says, Blessed is the one who fears the Lord always, but whoever hardens his heart will fall into calamity. Happy. Happy is the one who fears God. That's very different than the spider in the corner of the room, isn't it? Now, here's another one, Psalm 130, verse 4. But you offer forgiveness that we might learn to fear you. Because you forgive my sins, God, I fear you. That's a very different fear than our modern-day idea of what fear is. There's a positive fear. It's an inward awe before God. It's an inward condition of delight with a magnitude of who God is. So why call that fear, anyways? You see, the two types of fear that we just talked about have some things in common. See, positive fear does not have torment attached to it. You are free from thinking about yourself when you have the fear of the Lord. In negative fear, you're totally absorbed by yourself in that spider in the corner of the room. In negative fear, you're paralyzed by what you're fearing, But in positive fear, you're just empowered in life. The fear of the Lord means God is absolutely central. And you can only do things in reference to him when you fear the Lord. You you continually ask yourself, how does my whatever, how does my job involve God? 
When you have the fear of the Lord, you ask yourself, how does this affect my relationship with God? How does what I'm doing right now relate at all to God when you have awe of him, when you have this fear of God? When you sin, you're more awestruck with something or someone more than you're awestruck with God. And when you're in awe of God, you're focused on his greatness and his majesty and his sovereignty and his love and his power. So let's talk about how do we apply this to our lives now? How, how do I deal with the nature of sin in my life, this denial and this no awe of God? The first way is this. I need to tell someone. I need to tell someone. To break the grip of denial in your life, that, that sin is denial, or, or to, to deny sin in your life, you need to tell somebody to admit that you're powerless over sin. If, you're, if you know that you're given to a particular character flaw, and I would say that most of us know, most of us know that we're given to a particular sin. When we talk about which of these seven deadly sins are most deadly to you, chances are most of you thought, yeah, that one or those three or those six or, or <laughs> whatever, you know. It, but most of you know. You, you know. And when you know, to break the grip of denial in your life, you need to share this with a friend. And chances are, your friend will not be shocked. Did you hear me? If you've got a good friend, and you say, hey, by the way, I'm really having a problem with lust, your friend's going to go, yeah, I knew it. I know, we're friends. They might even say, me too. If we're, we're friends, you know? In all of this, needing to tell someone doesn't come naturally to human beings because the force field of sin, of denial, of sin in our life is just, it's, it's all over. Now, this is why in, in Nova's mission to make disciples, we have disciple-making small groups where you can find grace-filled, safe friendships where you could tell someone to break this grip of sin, of, of denial. And you might be thinking, you know, I'd be way too embarrassed to tell someone, to ask them to hold me accountable, to, I can handle this myself. You could say it. I mean, you know it's the force field of denial that's happening in your life. We always underestimate the power of denial of sin. It'll be a matter of time, though, that the pain of your sin will eat through the, your wall of denial in your life. Someone might be thinking this. Well, wait a minute, Dean. If I put my faith, my faith in Jesus Christ, doesn't he forgive me of all my sins and kind of take care of all my sins? Why do I need to tell somebody? Well, faith is facing reality without being discouraged by it. Faith is not saying, I'm not in pain when you're in pain. Faith is not, I don't hurt. I'm not hurting when everyone knows you are. It's, it's not saying, I'm happy when you know your heart's just grieving. And that's not faith. That's called phoniness. And faith is facing the facts without being disheartened by them because you know that God is greater than your problem. The first way to deal with this is you need to tell someone. The second is 
I need to be willing to listen to criticism and feedback. This hurts. This hurts. I think this hurts less than the sin in your life. I need to be willing to listen to criticism and feedback. Most of us are currently getting criticism from somebody, someone, people we love or people who don't love us or, or whatever. Most of us are getting some form of criticism. And it might be easy for you to say when you get that criticism that you can say, you know what, there's a lot of error in that criticism or, or there's a lot of exaggeration or, or I don't like the way you're saying that to me or your motives are bad or the language you're using is inappropriate. It's easy to pass off criticism like that. And by my nature, I tend to deny the things that are really wrong with me. So I need to ask myself when I get this criticism, this feedback, I need to get away with God and say, God, are you trying to tell me something in my life? If you believe that sin is denial, then you should be the most gracious when you get criticism, most willing to listen to feedback and less defensive when you, if you're going to take this seriously. And it's not just willing, being willing to hear criticism, but this one's harder, to risk asking for criticism, asking for feedback on your life. I had lunch with a, with a young guy this week. I never met him before. He called me, and he said, can I have lunch with you? I said, yes, and we, had, we went out to lunch, and we were just at the elephant bar, and we were talking and sharing our life stories because I never met him before. He's a pastor of a new church here in the South Bay, and we were eating and talking and kind of went silent for a little bit, and he stopped eating, and he looked at me, and he said, is there anything I should know as a new pastor here in the South Bay? He says, you've been doing this for a long time. Is there anything that I should know? And then he said, rather than just the whole ministry thing, he said, is there any advice that you can give me in my life? This week I'm excited to... um, go away with a, uh, for a couple days with a group of consultants that I'm a part of. And, and it's interesting. It's a group of, of uh, consultants, and, and I happen to be one of the younger ones in this group. So it's kind of fun for, for me to be a part. And I'm one of the younger. And I'm going to take a tip from this young guy that I had lunch with this last week. And I'm really looking forward to just taking some time during the breaks in between training to sitting down with a couple of my older colleagues and saying, can you give me some feedback on my life? Here's where I'm at. Here's where I'm at in my personal life. Here's where I'm at with my church. Can you give me some feedback on my life? Are you willing to listen to criticism from others? Are you willing to ask God, are they trying to tell me, are you trying to tell me something through them? And here's an important one. Are you cultivating relationships with others that really know you and that you know them? It's mutual. And how about this? Are you willing to cultivate a relationship with somebody that you're risking loving them? And here's the harder one for a lot of you, that you're willing to let them love you. There's so many active, energetic, loving people at NOVA but sometimes it's hard to love you that I offer. Can I bring a meal over? Can I help you? Can I 
and it's like, oh, I'm, I'm fine, I'm fine, I'm okay. You know what? I think we need to grow in that area more. We're willing to be loving towards someone, but I'm going to challenge some of you. Would you let others love you? Because I think that's, you get very vulnerable, don't you, when you allow someone to love you, to, to say, I need something or I have a deficit in my life and, and someone's willing to bring a meal over to my house because I'm hurting a little bit. I, maybe I need some encouragement. Are you willing to be loved by others? I know many of you are willing to love. Some of you need to love more. But are you willing to know somebody and be known? Are you willing to love somebody and risk being loved? And I'll say it again, small groups start next week, and many of you aren't in small groups. You need to sign up today. Last point before we boil over and get too hot. How to deal with a nature of sin in my life, I need to tell someone. The second is I need to be willing to listen to criticism and feedback in my life. That's to break that force field of denial of sin in my life. And this one is I need to develop more awe of God, more fear of the Lord in my life. Now, I'll, I'll, I'll just say this. Our corporate worship time, what we're, what we're doing right now is all planned and prayed for to point us to more awe of God. It's not to point us to how awesome we are as leaders. It's to point us to God. The worship team, the worship leaders, the, the people praying for you, the kids teaching, in, the people teaching in Nova Kids and pre-K and nursery and toddlers, the ones who set up the coffee. And all, it's to point to not how great Nova is, it's how great God is. That's what this is all about. So to develop more awe of God, we need to continue to, to, to continue to worship together corporately. You need to have a daily time with God because this is really only uh, a one hour a week plus Nova classes, maybe two and a half hours a week. You need to have a daily time with God where you're getting into his word. And, and we've designed this open campaign prayer devotional. And you could grab one as you leave. There's a display out there, and, and you can grab one as you leave. And every day you can have a scripture reading and a little meditation, a little prayer. It's to connect with God so that you can develop more fear of the Lord, more awe of God. You need to cultivate a conversation with God where you're just not just talking at him and telling him all the needs of everyone you know of and all your personal needs, but you need to listen to God. Uh, you need to learn to listen to God. So cultivating this conversation with God will produce more awe of God in your life. You need to break away. Sometimes we get so into our work and our home and this and that, and it's all structured. Would you take a, a break on your drive home from, from work and, and drive by the ocean? And look how vast and awesome that is. And you'll develop more awe of God when you look at the waves and the vastness of the ocean and you breathe in that clean, salty air and it develops more awe of God and you look at the peninsula and you see how God created all of that. You look, go out and look at our beautiful stone pine and say, God, you created this. More awe to you and less on me. And the last way is this. To develop more awe of God is remember the love of God and the sacrifice of Jesus. 
as we observe the Lord's Supper at this time. Let's pray together.